Hello, late night listeners. Uh, this is Brian, and I wanted to let you know that we have a Patreon. It's a really fun thing. It's a great way to support the show, and it gets you access to all kinds of exclusive stuff. We have exclusive mini episodes. We have videos of me, for example, writing music for various things of the show. Leighton's doing all sorts of stuff, and it's just a really fun community. You also get access to our Discord if you sign up for our $5 a month tier or up. So uh, if you like the show and you like what you hear, please check us out over on Patreon. It's really a great way to to support us. Thanks so much. And enjoy Late Night with Brian Wecht. It's my Don Pardo impression. Well, you know what episode this is, right? Um, number 69, part two? Yes, a.k.a. episode 90. Hell yeah, that's nuts, Brian. 90th episode, I know, right? Oof. Yeah, getting close to two years. Oh, that's crazy, you can't say that. I had a moment of true, like, mayo appreciation the other day. Oh, two seconds into this podcast, we're finally getting into it. Yeah, I just got a sandwich from Jersey Mike's, and they just put a very generous helping of mayo on it. And it was like, mm. this is holding this entire thing together. Like, individually, yeah. everything's pretty good. The slathering of mayo takes it up so many notches. What else was on the sandwich? Oh, it was like a Jersey Mike's club. So, you know, bacon, avocado, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some meats, question mark. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always inclined to get the, like, drench it in oil, but it's just not practical. I don't want wet bread. I want that sweet, sweet oil, but I don't want that wet, wet bread. Yeah, I love oil and vinegar on a sandwich, and it really turns a corner. Put it in the fridge overnight. Oh, man, that sandwich the next day, it's the best. Wait, so you want the wet bread? You know what? The next day, hell yeah, I do. I want a cold sandwich that's been sitting in its own juices for a day. I understand the flavor potential of that, because if I get any sort of sub thing, I'm going to get two and I will eat like a king for 48 hours. But I stopped getting the oil and vinegar because I want my hands clean. I want them wiped Mm. clean of sin. Well, you can be the ultimate monster and eat your sandwich with a knife and fork. Can you imagine? Well, here's what you do. You go to a Jersey Mike's, you bring your own silverware, and I mean silverware and a cloth napkin. Right. And you lay it out properly. Yep. You eat it. Fork in your left hand, European style, none of this switching American bullshit. And you enjoy that sandwich as it was meant to be enjoyed. That's evil. That might have been the most evil idea we've ever platformed on this show. Look, you can choose to make any dining experience you have gauche and base, or you can choose to class the fuck up and really enjoy your meal. Because the two main things I'm thinking of are like pizza and sandwich that are just an abomination if you knife and fork it. No, absolutely go fuck yourself on this because (laughs) eating pizza with a knife and a fork is a civilized, fine thing to do. And many millions of people around the world agree with me. By that turn, why is it not okay for a sandwich? You know what? I will say there are some sandwiches. If you get a real sloppy little bitch and you want to eat that thing, (laughs) you got to eat it with a knife and a fork. So if you go to like Cat's Deli and they give you a size of your head pastrami, like you endorse a knife and a fork? No. I feel like in that situation, it would feel wrong to hit it with a knife and a fork. I'm talking about like a sloppy Joe 
or like a real goopy little burger, <laughs> you know, a real goopy burger. If you're going for a sloppy joe, why wouldn't you just like eat chili at that point? Well, I hate sloppy joes. Famously, Same. I hate sloppy joes. I don't like cooked green peppers. I love green peppers. Yeah. There's something about the flavoring that cooked green peppers bring to stuff that I dislike intensely. This is what I was talking about with the heathen hash browns I had a few weeks ago. Yes. Just like, don't yes. put cooked green pepper. Listen, you get a freshly little chopped green pepper, you get some dipping sauces. Like, it's, it's great. crunchy and delicious, but cooked. It's awesome. Ugh. Right? There's something about a green pepper that's cooked. Red peppers, I'm okay with, but green peppers cooked? Nope. Can't do it. I will say, though, but like a green stuffed pepper, like cooked by somebody who knows what they're doing is delicious. I'm even out with that. I like a chili relleno. Oh, my God. But but that's not a green bell pepper. That's like a, yeah. a serrano or something like that, right? Oh, chili rellenos are so good. So yeah. good. There's this place in San Diego called the Bahia Grill, I believe, in La Jolla like near the water, they do this burrito. I think it's called a surfer burrito where the entire burrito has a chili relleno in it. And it's, oh, it's so fucking good. Yeah, there's a place near me that does one of those. And it's unfortunately like not as good as you'd want it to be. Mm -hmm. Like I had a chili relleno the other night for the first time in a while. And it was just like, this is heaven. And I love the slow creep as you get up to the stem where you're like, all right, oh, yeah. how thorough were they That's on right. the seeds with this? Because I'm about to sweat. Yep. But yeah, Sloppy Joe's, I, I, I don't know about it. Well, the other thing is, whenever I think of a Sloppy Joe, I think of school cafeteria. And yeah. that is also a thing that I feel like there's never been an elegant version or a, a decent version of a Sloppy Joe. Look, I'm sure there's Sloppy Joe fan clubs all over the fucking world. But <laughs> when I think of a Sloppy Joe, I think of bad school lunch, like of the worst school lunch or summer camp, even worse which is just not a tenable situation. Yeah, and I just looked up like gourmet Sloppy Joes and the pictures are not selling me. Sloppy Josephs. <laughs> yeah, these are some real Sloppy Josephs, but uh, he's trying his best. Show me what you're looking at here. Just Google image search uh, gourmet Sloppy Joes. Oh, don't, don't put it on a poppy seed bun. Slop no, that's fuck? fucking, then you're a crazy person. <clears throat> All right. This looks awful. No, fuck this. This is dumb. On a waffle? Why would you want this? <sighs> All of this looks terrible. Oh, no way. I'm sorry, but don't, you can't have a gourmet version of a food with the word sloppy <laughs> in the title. Oh, okay. The ones with the little cornichons on the top, that's cute. I like that. I mean, is that cute because it seems better or are we just kinder to it because there's a pickle? I mean that, the latter. I'm sure it's gross. This is a maybe shocking for me. I adore pickles so much. This is well-established. We know mm -hmm, this. I cannot mm -hmm, stand mm -hmm. pickles on a sandwich. Really? Whoa. Unless it's like a Cubano. Dropping bombs today. I know. I don't know why. It's just like a separate thing. I would like to enjoy it in the full flavoredness of it as a separate entity. Mm-hmm. I can do both. I like a sandwich with a bunch of pickles on it. I love pickles on a burger. That's great. Pickles on the right, like, sub sandwich can be awesome. There's a certain type of pickle, a bread and butter pickle, which I loathe. Yeah, they're pretty bad. They're, like, sweet. Oh, just why would you do it? There are lots of great pickles out there. 
bread and butter pickles, which I think are just, they're one of those stupid American things that no right thinking person in the rest of the world would actually eat. And Americans seem to love. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I don't think so. I really liked them when I was a kid, but I was a child who didn't know any better. No, I grew up in New Jersey with real pickles and that stuff was all bullshit. Yeah. Never, never liked those. Same thing with sweet relish. I don't like sweet relish. I think I don't mind it because the only times I ever have it is in a little tuna salad. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to say no. What else do you use relish for? What do you put it on? Oh, on a hot dog. Oh. Straight up mustard and relish hot dog. Or actually, I remember when I was a kid, I read some kid's book where the kids ate like a hamburger with mustard and relish on it. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then I tried it and it was really good. And I have probably not eaten that in close to 40 years or something, <laughs> but I remember really liking it at the time. Hmm. I'm still looking at these sloppy Joes, and this is... There's one that I respect simply for the nature of the double down, where it's a sloppy Joe with a scoop of mac and cheese in the oh, sandwich. God. It's like, yeah, I guess. If we're going to go full, like, you need to eat this with silverware, I guess. Can we talk about the very gendered brand Manwich? which I always thought was ridiculous and certainly is not doing itself any favors in 2021. Brian, you're so brave to say that. You're really yeah, winning well, one for feminism here. On behalf of all boomers, fuck you, Manwich. <laughs> I'm going to start a GoFundMe to rename Manwich to Girl Boss Witch. <laughs> but Witch is W-I-T-C-H, right? Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. You know, Killstar, you've probably seen either me or Susie wearing some of their clothes. They're like a goth clothing slash lifestyle brand. And they do a uh -huh. lot of like, you know, riffs on like, oh, here's a little bag that's shaped like a carton of milk. And it's like goth milk. And it's got all the branding. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But that, but with Manwich. Okay. I didn't even know this was a brand. Look at this. I'm looking at the Killstar website. Yeah. Oh, what a shock. Here's something shaped like a bat. Killstar, I am begging you, make your website easier to navigate. I want to be able to click on a thing to see all. Ugh. I want to give you money, y'all. Let me give you money. But you're just making it so difficult for me to do that. They have incredible home goods. If you could pick one thing from this collection for me to wear, what would you pick? This bat onesie? Uh, this is great for an audio medium where yeah. listeners, I also don't know what Brian's talking about. Let me see. Men, um... Hmm, tops. This is just turning into an ad for Killstar. Their clothes are so comfortable, Brian. I wear a lot of black. I wouldn't say what I wear is gothy exactly, but I do wear a lot of black t-shirts. So I'm pretty yeah, edgy you do. is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you're pretty hip. You're pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. You, you really couldn't <laughs> go wrong, Brian. <laughs> One time Rachel was like, when was the last time you wore a button-down shirt? And I was like, oh, fuck, I don't know. Like a couple of years? It's been a while. Well, if something occurs to you, let me know. Now, okay, I close that tab and I'm back to the fucking Sloppy Joes. Sloppy Josephs. Whoa, what? Wait a minute. Okay, I'm on Google Image Search and one, two, three, four, five. The fifth tab, I guess, over is something called Sophisto Joes. Do you see this? Oh, oh no. The description of the Sophisto Joes. These are the Jay Gatsby's of Sloppy Joes, i.e. Oh, dead in a pool suave debonair, but we'd be remiss if we let the black tie frippery of these cosmopolitan Joes belie their true nature. Frippery? Close the tab. I don't want to hear it. 
Once the word frippery comes up, that's an automatic out. <laughs> they're doubling down on the Gatsby thing, just as with Fitzgerald's famous hero. There's substance underneath all that class. Or do they put a West egg on top? <laughs> I hate this. There's nothing about this that is grown up or different from a sloppy Joe. People in other countries must not know what this bullshit is, right? There's no way this exists. Maybe Canada. It might be the national food of Canada for all I know. Speaking of which, I just got back from Canada. Oh, yes. Okay. We had many of things that we were going to discuss that weren't 15 minutes going off on Sloppy Joseph's. So please say your more interesting things. Oh, well, I was so happy to see Twerp. You know, I went up there to record this album with uh, Meowch and the album was great, but it was just fun to travel again and be in another country for the first time in, well, I guess I went up for Hadfield's Generator two years before, like January 2020. But yeah, it'd been, you know, a year and a half and change since I was in Canada. And I'll, I love Toronto. It's a great city with maybe the ugliest residential architecture I've ever seen. It's just... Oh, what's the style? There is no style. It's, it's like <laughs> ugly brick or ugly siding, and that's it. I'm not hating on Toronto. I love the city. There's so much cool stuff there. But the residential architecture is chaotic in the worst possible way. Hmm. It is not a pleasant city to like walk around and look at houses, at least in anything I've seen. And by the way, this was corroborated by Canadians where I was like, this city's ugly, right? And they were like, oh yeah, Toronto sucks. It just has no aesthetic. Toronto has no visual aesthetic to it. And the, no, the fucking CN Tower doesn't count. I have no uh, knowledge or basis with which to refute these claims. So I will simply stare at the really nice tourist pictures on Google Images. Well, the thing is, it's not just like a generic Canadian thing either. Like there's some cities and it's certainly I'm not widely traveled in Canada, but like Montreal has a vibe, you know, for example, I've never been to Quebec City, but like it has a vibe. It's ever kind of European and cool. Toronto just fucking sucks visually. Great. So we've lost all of the listeners from Toronto. Now, look, there are so many great things to like about Toronto, like, uh, I mean, food's Actually, not that great. Uh, the <laughs> weather is also terrible. You know, a lot of people were kind of rude. <clears throat> I found a nice used bookstore. Oh, oh, okay. Get this. I bought a book. So I was wandering along uh, College Avenue on my one day off out of the studio, and I stopped in a used bookstore, and I bought a book entitled Jazz Anecdotes, which... We brought to the studio, or I brought to the studio, I should say, to inspire our smooth jazz recording, and it was awesome. Do you want to hear some jazz anecdotes? I would love nothing more than to hear some jazz anecdotes. Okay, so this book is called Jazz Anecdotes. This is the first edition, hardcover, written by Bill Crow, who was a bassist in Jerry Mulligan's band in the 50s and 60s, and a musician and author. And my eye was just drawn to this. Describe the cover art to me. It's very like early 90s, which makes sense because that's when it was written. It's got a couple squiggly orange lines and like Ooh. all the words are in a stencil font in various colors. It's got a picture of two musicians on the cover and I'm not quite sure who they are. Both laughing? They're both laughing, yes. And one guy is a trumpet player. I should know who these are and I don't. So I don't know who these guys are. Okay, so the chapters are grouped by topic and then by musician. So 
some chapter headings. I'll just read them to you here. Wild scenes, the word jazz, beginnings, inventions, pianos, teachers and students, stage fright, reading music, hiring and firing, managers, agents, and bosses, on the road, arrangers and arrangements, cutting contests, 52nd Street, jazz records, jazz on the air, the well-dressed jazz musician, prejudice, songs, goofs, pranks, the put-on, good lines, nicknames, and here we go with the musicians, Louis Armstrong, Bessie Smith, Bix Beiderbeck, I, I've never been sure how to pronounce this guy's name, Beiderbecky, Beiderbecky, I don't know, Fats Waller, Eddie Condon, Pee Wee Russell, Duke Ellington and his orchestra, Benny Goodman, Coleman Hawkins, and Lester Young, Art Tatum and his children, Joe Venuti, Tommy Dorsey, Lionel Hampton, Charlie Parker, John Burks Gillespie, why they wouldn't say Dizzy, I'm not sure, <laughs> Charles Mingus, Zoot Sims and Alcone, Miles Davis and John Coltrane, and then finally, a section entitled Jokes. So, <laughs> Oh, so separate from the goofs and pranks sections. That's right. Did any of those jump out at you as something you'd like to hear? Something about the well-dressed jazz musician? Oh, sure. The well-dressed jazz musician from 123. So all these are just like, they're stories which he pulled from somewhere, and then there's a little bit of setup, which doesn't help. <laughs> so all of these read like the Tim Heidecker, I think you should leave celebrities sketch, <laughs> where it's a bunch of names where, you know, it's like little Bobby Johnson. And you're like, what? And oh, yeah, you know, don't you know, you know, he, he played with Basie from January 1937 to February 1937. <laughs> I'm just going to open up to one of these. OK, let's see. it. Here's the preface. When they were both living in Kansas City, Lips shared his wardrobe with Count Basie. Lips Page had a couple or three fine special suits. And at that time, he and I were the same size. So one night we were supposed to go out somewhere. And I said I couldn't go because I didn't have anything to match up. And he said, that's all right. Why don't you borrow one of my suits? And I said, okay. I figured that'd be great because he had three real sharp, truly great outfits. But I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I couldn't get rid of him. <laughs> Everywhere I went, he was right there with me saying, don't lean on that. Or he'd say, hey, man, that chair is kind of dirty. Hey, Basie, watch it sitting down. He couldn't think of anything else all night but that suit of his I was wearing. That was one of the most uncomfortable evenings I've ever had in my life. I was never so glad to get back home and take off a suit. So there you go. That's a hashtag jazz anecdote. I do love that. There was one joke that actually made us all laugh. Now, most of these jokes are pretty dire. <laughs> Give me like a dire one first. Oh, okay. A club date leader who was primarily a singer held and plucked at a string bass while fronting his band, but knew very little about playing the instrument. One evening, his pianist arrived at the job to find the leader holding a little boy by the collar while he angrily cuffed him about the head. Why are you hitting the kid? Asked the saxophonist. The leader said, The little son of a bitch twisted one of my tuning knobs and he won't tell me which one. <sighs> yep. Wow. Okay. Now I'm going to read the funny one. <laughs> okay. Deep in the jungle, a safari was camped for the night. In the darkness, distant drums began a relentless throbbing that continued until dawn. The safari members were disturbed but the guide reassured them. Drums good. When drums stop, very bad. <laughs> every night the drumming continued and every night the guide reiterated, drums good. When drums stop, very bad. <laughs> then one night the drums suddenly stopped. The guide looked frightened. When drums stop, very, very bad, he said. Why is it bad? 
asked a member of the safari. Because when drums stop, bass solo begins. (laughs) Right? Actually funny. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. (laughs) Here's another one from the joke section. A band leader was having a few words with his musicians just before the job. Now listen, you guys, when I say eight o'clock, I want the music to start at eight. I don't want you walking in here at eight. And the drummer went rump up on his snare and bass drum. And I want a clean shirt and a clean shave on everyone. I don't want any bums in my band. And the drummer went rump up bum. And when I say a blue jacket, I mean a nice blue blazer. Don't come in here wearing the top half of some worn out black suit. And the drummer went rump crash. And if I find out who's making that noise, That's it. That's the joke. (laughs) There's some some 4D comedy here. Yeah, I mean, that's jazz, baby. Oh, yeah. There's a whole Paul F. Tompkins bit about how jazz is just designed to make other people feel stupid for not understanding it, (laughs) which is a very funny little bit. It's this incredible thing where jazz went from, you know, being... I don't even know what you'd call it, like pretty raw, I would guess, originally, right? And now Mm -hmm. it's like this hyper-intellectual thing. Like people who do jazz are straight-up nerds at this point, generally speaking. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know enough about that to refute it, so. I think there was a big change. I'm not enough of a historian to really know, but probably around the bebop era when people like really started playing these solos, which were you know, very technical and about the chords changing rapidly and really getting into the harmonic structure. And then you have these super intellectuals like Coltrane and Sun Ra and, you know, this now goes up through the present day. Jazz has become like, it's a very nerdy thing to do in a good way. And some of the music is amazing, right? But I deeply, deeply love it. That's what to me is funny about it is it sometimes it takes itself a little too seriously, like many, many things. Mm. That's why I like some hashtag jazz anecdotes. Yeah, yeah. Let me know how the jazz anecdotes like spiced up this process. So give me the lowdown on the studio. I have lots of synth questions. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The studio. So the studio was was great. It was in uh, Toronto. And the incredible synth lineup. So we're talking, what did we plan? We used the Korg M1 a lot, which... We booted up and had no sounds on it, like literally none. And we were like, fuck, what do we do? So we tried to download some from the internet and connect to a computer, which Mm -hmm. shockingly had trouble talking to a 40-year-old synthesizer, but eventually got the sounds on there. I think the guy who runs the studio contacted his (laughs) forum of Ontario synth heads and got a, a card which uh, I think helped with all the patches. So we got all those back. The M1 is iconic, used in countless things in the, I forget exactly what year it came out. I think it's late 80s, early 90s, 88 to 95, yeah. So you have heard the Korg M1. Oh, I didn't realize that's the best-selling synthesizer in history. Wow. And you have heard these patches unadulterated on many, many things, especially in like house music. I'm looking here, apparently it was in Vogue, the Madonna Ah, yes. So, yeah, lots of fun things and some really, like, 
There's a slap base patch on there, which is pretty rough, and we <laughs> used it. But I love a really shitty base patch on a synth, especially from a certain era. Like, it feels like a completely different beast, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, this is a very, very specific sound. Do you know Dr. Mix? He's something of a synth head. Wait, yes, I've 100% watched many of this guy's videos. You've watched yeah. many of this guy's things. <laughs> and he has a video, which we watched to go through some patches, called Korg M1 Synthesizer Famous Sounds. And you've heard these sounds before. I've definitely watched a lot of his, like, famous sounds. What a character. <laughs> yes, he's, like, Scandinavian, I believe. Yeah. He's also so excited to, like, handle synths, which I think is the best oh, thing yeah. about getting into the synth side of YouTube. But there are so many good, like, any of the huge, like, analog synth demonstrations or, like, modular ones where they're just like, oh, it's such a pleasure to be able to pull this sound out of it. And it's just, like, the worst, loudest buzzing you've ever heard. And it's like, yep. these are my people. I love this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are so many presets on those synths where you're like, why, why, why would you do this? Who would ever, ever use this for any reason? It's really astonishing. We also used a Yamaha DX7. Nice. Which is a real classic and has a lot of 80s ballads with uh, kind of a belly electric piano, have DX7 on them. Those are great. So we use that. We had a old school Juno, which I have the module for, but, you know, it ain't the real thing. Yeah, yeah. Also, I love the aesthetic of the Juno. It's one of my favorites. It's great. Yes. You know, it's real boxy and... Pastelli. Yeah, I have a um, pedal of like the chorus for my bass, and the pedal has like wood casing on the sides of it. It's so cool looking. <laughs> That's great. Great sounds on that too. We used a bunch of them. Yeah. Honestly, the most exciting thing was playing on a Hammond organ with a Leslie, which is the speaker that comes with it, you know, that rotates and gives it some vibrato. And oh. I've never played on a real Hammond before. It was really fun. What was the experience like of playing on it? I mean, you know, you have to like pull out the drawbars and mm. the keys go down real easy and they're short. So you can do the slides, like, you know, those classic organ slides, you know, listen to whoever, Jimmy Smith or whatever. And you can just do them super easy because the keys, there's not much resistance to them. And it's weird because also, so it's got two keyboards, a top and a bottom, which you mm -hmm. can just have different presets on. But at the bottom, the bottom like octave are they're shaped like the white keys whatever of a piano but they're black and those are the presets so you can preset sounds using those keys oh we didn't use that at all because we just adjusted the drawbars as necessary but it's fucking cool and those leslie is like roughly as tall as a person it's a gigantic fucking thing wow yeah that's wild i'd never seen a leslie before oh yeah every time i see one i'm like how do people travel with these because they're huge and the organ's huge. So if you're like an organ player, what the fuck do you do? You just, I guess, drive around with this fucking thing. It's huge, but the sound is amazing. Yeah, there's a really good free VST that I forget the exact name of it, but it's like a very, very good and fun to mess with B3 Hammond mm -hmm. thing. It's free. If you look it up, you will probably find it. I use that one a lot. And you can mess with the drawbars and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's fun. I still don't understand how organs work, but like once you have the ability to mess with it, it's like, oh, that's why it makes that sound. I see. Well, I, roughly speaking, what you're doing is, you know what an overtone series is harmonically? Nope. Okay. So an overtone series is a bunch of frequencies that occur in 
basically set intervals above a given tone. So if you're vibrating at, I don't know, whatever, I'm going to make up a thing, 100 hertz, okay? And you double that, 200 hertz. That tone is an octave above the first one. And as you kind of keep going up through these series, here's another way of thinking about it that's actually more helpful. Take a guitar string. All right. When you pluck it, so it's fixed at the ends, right? So don't like, you know, put your fingers on the frets or whatever. You pluck it and there's a waveform that can fit on this thing, which, you know, basically clamp down at one end, clamp down at the bottom, and then it just goes up and then down, right? So that you can fit right. basically half a wavelength there. That's called the fundamental frequency of that thing. Now, the other thing you could do is have it go up and then down. So basically, the wavelength gets half as big. So you're fitting one full wavelength between those endpoints. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. You can basically put in a set number of half wavelengths between any two points and create a standing wave. Okay. Right? So it can go up and then down, and then those are the endpoints. It can go up and then down and then back up. That's like fitting twice as much in the two endpoints. That wavelength is half as much, so the frequency is twice as much because there's an inverse relationship between frequency and wavelength. And it turns out that these notes that you would get, the pitches you would get from these, which start at what's the fundamental and then a frequency twice as high and then three times as high and then four times as high and then five times as high, et cetera, are set intervals. So first it's an octave up, then it's a fifth up from that, then it's a fourth up from that. And you can kind of keep going as you go to the different multiples of the fundamental frequency, and that's what's called the overtone series. Okay. So generally speaking, when you have something like, you know, whatever, a guitar string or an organ pipe or whatever, anything where that's creating sound, you get some mixture of all of these frequencies at once, right? It's not just a pure tone. It's a mixture of all of these. And mm -hmm. how much you have of each one is what the draw bars in an organ basically do. Oh. So if you, you know, you close the top ones, but open up the bottom ones, the pitch will be lower. But if you open up all, then you're kind of weighting everything equally. Roughly speaking, I'm not 100% sure how the mechanism works on an organ. So maybe it's not uh, this linear thing that I'm talking about, but it basically is weighting the different parts of the overtone series in different ways and then giving you a different sound that has different amounts of high or low pitches. Okay. That mostly makes sense. Organs are cool. Very hard to do that without drawing anything. <laughs> Just explaining it. <laughs> Pure audio. So, yeah. And they had a Rhodes and a Whirly, two classic electric pianos, which I love playing on. We use the Whirly a lot. Tell me about the Whirly. Oh, it's just rad. So basically, you turn the thing on, you can control the volume, the amount of vibrato, and this thing played great, and I love the sound. So we use that for most of the songs on the album. That's what I like to hear. Yep. You had a little Selena in there? You know what? We didn't use the Selena at all. There was no real room for it. What the fuck, Brian? Well, that's the next album, I guess. Folks listening, if you like Beach House, Beach House loves a Selena. We love those string pads. You know what they did have? They had a fun machine. A fun machine? Look up right now, Google Fun Machine. What the fuck is this? This is a classic like it's kind of an organ but it has real cheesy beats and 
stupid sounds. Oh, they're Ooh, fucking great. That's neat. You know, last night, I feel like in preparation for this episode, I had a dream about uh-huh. keyboards. It was like there were a bunch of very pastel, like all the keys and everything on it were the same shade of like gentle, pale, like baby puke green. Mm-hmm. And there were a bunch of different variations, like real aesthetic, like Pantone mm-hmm. uh, dealies. So maybe my brain was preparing me for synth discussion. I like that. That's a cool idea for a design. Yeah. God, I learned so much on this trip. So do you know what an optagon is? Like with a P? Hold on. Let me let me find this thing because I always forget how to spell it. Optigan. Optigan. Thank you. Oh, yeah. It's optical organ. Right. Ooh, love this. So this was an old school thing that had like discs in it that you could adjust the tempo of by how fast they spun. And it had all these like amazing pre-programmed samples. You just scroll through. You can get all of these now, but they basically hired people to play in like every key, you know, these different like funk and stuff samples. Wow. Did you listen to either of the tracks I sent you yesterday? No, I haven't looked it up in my email. One of those, it's like a Latin thing. And the main drum thing we used is a loop from the Optigan. That's really cool. I love the color scheme of it, like this washed out nursing home brown. Oh, it's fucking cool. Very cool. Apparently there's a free iPad app if you want to get some of those sounds yourself. Oh, there is? Wow. Yeah. Okay. The disc thing reminds me of the Mellotron. I would love to see a Mellotron in person. Oh, yeah. Those are fucking cool, especially the old school ones. There's a video on YouTube of someone who like restored their own going through like all the tapes in the back, like, fuck, that's so cool. Yeah. You know, you can get a modern one, which doesn't work on tape anymore. It's all digital. Really? Yeah, yeah. They have newer Mellotrons. Oh, they've got the Mellotron Mini, I see. Yeah, it defeats the purpose of the original, but on the other hand, it also works. Yeah, it isn't completely broken because it's all, like, actual tapes. Yeah, exactly. So for those of you who don't know what a Mellotron is, it's basically the same thing. And you've heard this on, like, it's on Beatles songs. And it's all over the place. Yeah, Strawberry Fields Forever, it's that sound. Like the flute sound. Yeah. On that. But the samples it used for the notes were actually, like, recorded on tape. And every time you hit a note, it would play the tape. I've never seen someone take it apart, but that's not easy to do. And they were famously finicky. It's very convoluted in the back. Even if you're not interested in synths, just look this up on YouTube because it's really cool. Yeah. What are the instrument tracks that are on it? There's choir, I believe. Yeah. Violin, viola. There's flute. I think there's some strings. Maybe a trumpet. There's flute or flutes, plural. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Look at this. Oh, internal operations of Mellotron. Now you are speaking my language. Ooh, Ooh. all right. Looking at the Mellotron, this poster for duets for Mellotron came up. And this has maybe the greatest art I've ever seen in my life. Oh, my. Yes, please. Oh, God. Wow. (laughs) Fuck. What the fuck is happening here? That is a couple faces. The world's first Mellotron duet concert. They can't make that claim. 2016. (laughs) What are you talking about? I like that they have to also include who provided the Mellotrons. And look at that name, Winston Eggleston. If you had to guess, like, what would the name of somebody who owns not one but multiple Mellotrons would be? I think that would probably be up there in the top three guesses. Yeah, I mean, certainly 
Wow. That's an old school nerd name, and I love it. I got to look up Winston Eggleston. Yeah, what's he do? Does he make his own stuff? You got a YouTube channel, bro? Are you an influencer? He's a film producer. Oh, my God. Look at the... What? Wait a minute. Yeah, he looks awesome. He's younger than I thought, at least in this picture. Winston Eggleston in Diaper Getty Museum? What? (laughs) Is this some, like, society guy? Wow. I think there might be, like, a whole thing going on here. Yeah. Interesting. Wow, is the Gettys website really that bad? Guys, it's 2021. You can get, like, a webmaster. I just searched my own name on Getty Images and nothing came up. Brutal. There's a bunch of pictures of corn, like the band. Hold on, this is really important. There was apparently one model of the Mellotron, only one of which was made, called the Skelotron, that was clear. Yes, that's so cool. Oh, my God. By the way, I was wrong. There are pictures of me on Getty Images in Starbomb. Uh, anyway. Look at this picture of the Skelotron. Whoa. The F- M400? Yeah. Fuck, that rules. Look at this thing. <laughs> it surfaced in 1990 in Dallas, Texas, in a studio called Dr. Funkenstein's Music Lab. Oh, wow. That rules. <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, there's one comment on this that's arguing. Oh, wow. And this is the Brian Gregory Wilson mentioned in the article. Oh, hold on. This is drama. Yeah, we got Mellotron drama. (laughs) All right. So, so much is inaccurate in this story. I found the Mellotron in a cheesy music store in Pleasant Grove, Texas. When I saw the serial number, acrylic number one, I knew it was something special. I called Dave Keene at Mellotronics to verify if it was a valuable antiquity, and he confirmed it was one of a kind. He said it had been stolen from a truck. (laughs) In Clearwater, Florida, along with two others. He said the statute of limitations had run out, so I was free to buy it. But if I was a stand-up guy, I'd let Dave buy it back from me and give me a refurbished M400 for my trouble. I did purchase it and held the note on it for nearly a year before he delivered the M400. I never cared for the way this story made me look like I moved stolen goods for profit. (laughs) I did the right thing and returned it to what I thought was its rightful owner. So many questions. What happened with the great Skeletron heist of Clearwater, Florida? (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, you know, you don't start playing Mellotrons unless you don't have the stomach for drama. Yeah, this is a little bit less of a Mellotron and more of a, um, insert better joke here. Dramatron? Dramatron. There we go. The Dramatron M400. I have my main monitor, which has like Zencaster, and then my other monitor is just 12 tabs of synth shit, which is really what I'm here for. You would have loved this studio. And the guy that ran it, Tom, was very dry in (laughs) all the best ways. I feel like that's the only way that a synth guy can be, you know? Oh, yeah. No, he, he was a really great musician and a really fun guy to work with. And I think the sounds were fun. So I'm very excited for this album to gradually come into being and it's a lot closer than it was two weeks ago that's so, great yep and i i mean i got to hang out with twerp i know like what else do you want love those guys i'm so jealous i missed them they'll be here in a couple months and they'll be on the road pretty soon so oh shit my boys they're out here in january yeah oh and i can't believe that january's in a couple of months <sighs> yeah it's november i wish someone online would talk about no nut november Everyone seems scared to mention it. Really? No, it's literally everything everyone tweets all the time 
once November starts. Just please stop. I'm begging you, people. Stop with the no nut November thing. It's a great service that our friend Matt Watson did to the world in dropping his no nut November song. Yeah, I, I do kind of blame him for making this problem worse. But all I know is for the next month, I can be guaranteed that anything I post on NSP that has anything to do with a sexual act, someone will be like, well, there goes my no nut November. Ugh. I know that it's like a meme, but... It- is it going off of the, like, you get superpowers if you don't nut? I don't know. I just want to be very clear that this podcast is taking a pro-nutting stance. Absolutely. No Nut November is bullshit. We're pro-nut November. <laughs> yeah. If you want to jerk off, then jerk off. If you don't want to jerk off, don't jerk off. Who cares? Off. There's no reason not to. It's not like sober for October where it's like, okay, good, don't drink. Like, that's probably better for you. But who cares if you don't jerk off? Nobody. And it doesn't do anything for you. And also, who needs to hear about it? Nobody. Yes, thank you. It's not like you come in every other day of every other month like, well, fellas, I really just cranked one out this morning. Like, (laughs) so why is it suddenly different if you're like, I'm a better person because I did not jerk off this morning. Everyone, why are you looking at me like I'm weird? Yeah. Also, coupled with the fact that no one's doing it. Like, come on. (laughs) By the way, the people who are tweeting about this the most are Definitely teenagers. Like, yeah. come on. Come the fuck on. Well, I guess the problem is that they're not coming the fuck on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we are anti-no-nut November, and we are pro-nut November. I'm pro-nut whenever you want with it, you know, obviously asterisk on that. Not, with all the obvious. Yeah, when appropriate. I shouldn't have to like hedge that. No, but we live in 2021 and someone will be like, so you're always pro-masturbation? You know, <laughs> even if it's a serial killer and an underage boy? <laughs> and the fact that you said that in a joking manner means that clearly uh, you don't take that seriously? Yeah. It's like, come on. Like, can we have the tiniest amount of social grace and charity in our interactions with each other where we are not immediately jumping to the worst possible assumption based on an omission in a clearly specific circumstance? Oh, yeah. As we've discussed many times, this specific thing drives me insane. What about... No. No, sorry. No one was thinking that. (laughs) Oh, sigh. I was going to talk more about not scary farm oh yeah you know i love the prospect of there are just guys in the crowd and you don't see them coming and they're gonna come flap a thing in your face but like legally six inches away from your face for safety reasons yeah it was just a beautiful thing there was a girl who was very tiny and screaming her head off and running around. And it just felt like a drop of blood in the water because there were like five convergent scarers on the sliders. Yeah. Yeah. And we were watching it and cracking up. And Vernon was like, we just watched somebody become the Joker in real time. (laughs) 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 Like that moment changed that person. How old is this kid? I don't know. But let me say, we saw a fucking baby here. Oh God, no. There was a baby like an actual infant. At night. At night. Late at night. At like oh, 2 a.m. There were also like a couple of six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, like really tiny kids. And it was really cute because there were ones in front of us at the haunted house and like one of the really big creepy scares like leaned down and gave the kid a high five. But Aww. also like 
I don't know, it kind of seems like maybe Halloween night in the middle of the night at a place where it's like, come in through here, you're going to see a bunch of dead bodies and we're going to jump out at you. Oh, to me, that seems like bad parenting. Yeah. Who knows? We went through maybe like five or six of the little haunted house mazes, deals, whatever. Mm-hmm. They were really fun and really well designed. It must be so much fun to come up with that stuff. Yeah. There was a um, a pumpkin eater one where it getting bored by a pumpkin. Hell but yeah. But the sound design on that one was great. Was it real goopy? Yeah, you couldn't hear shit over like goopy pumpkin crunch. Hell yeah. I mentioned the Waxworks one last week, but that was totally the coolest one. There was one that Vernon was super here for that was like, I don't know, a giant kraken attacking your ship. I like that. Yeah, I really love that the bit for each of them is that you know that it's the end of the maze because then there's just like a really huge animatronic guy. Like with the ship one, it was like, all right, here's a big shark. With the hypnotist one, it was like, all right, here's a big guy with a hat. That's great. Someone tweeted the other day. I wish I could remember who it was. Is Halloween the goopiest holiday? I think so. Yeah. And I really like that. It is the goopiest. I mean, what would be the contender for second goopiest? I'd say Thanksgiving is pretty goopy. I mean, it is the way I do it. <laughs> Brian, it's goopy the way most people do it. Yeah, but I add my extra special something to it. As stated. You're coming over for Thanksgiving. Yeah. You'll experience it. It'll be a very goopy Thanksgiving. That's right. Wow. All right. Well, we covered some topics there. Yeah, we did. We got through the goopy stuff, which is mainly the only thing I wanted to discuss. (laughs) We're almost like right on the hour mark for this recording, which it's funny that I say that because now people can compare how short the episode is compared to that hour (laughs) and know what the forbidden synth takes were. (laughs) We cut out all the really funny stuff and some really, really dirty gossip about the famous YouTuber. (laughs) And I wish I could tell you what we said about them, yeah. but we had to get rid of all of it. We had some really disparaging comments about some Korg synths, the memory yeah. Moog. <laughs> I know you'll never forget what we said here today, but the audience yeah. will never know. I wish you could have seen actually this mini Moog that they had, which was fucking great. Oh man. The mod wheel on that thing is like unusable. <laughs> uh, you just can't do anything with it. I think the pitch bend is like... It's something like plus or minus 17. Oh, boy. Why? Why would you do it? Why not? Except because it's awesome. Yeah. Some of the most beautiful synths, Minimoke, for example, you got your profits. The wood on those, why did we stop putting sick wood on stuff? Because I'm looking at Profit 5 right now. Like, that is gorgeous. You oil that bad boy up. That's a beautiful grain. What better to inspire you to make music? There's something about fake wood paneling that it was like cool in the 70s and then it became real dated and now it's awesome again and believe me i grew up in a basement that had like fake wood paneling like the whole basement which was was our like rec room fake wood and it was rad i had a great childhood in that basement yeah wood paneling just makes me feel warm and fuzzy and i'm glad to see that some of the 70s fashions are coming back also just like I have a really big thing about the unfashionable colors and how we really all need to embrace like a rust orange and a mustard yellow. Yeah. And a lime green. And a lime all together. green. Why not? And like maroon. Baby, we're all going to die. Buy stuff that's mustard colored. And then if you want to eat your stupid sloppy Joseph with a whole bundle of mustard on it and it gets on your shirt, don't matter. Yeah. Make sure you combine all these colors in thin horizontal stripes too. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, great. We've settled that one and made some strong yeah. stance. Literally, we're sitting here wrapping up this like main section of the episode, and I'm just scrolling Google images, looking at people's synth collections. Yeah. We've talked about this before. I'm not much of a gearhead. I love playing it. I don't want to have to worry about like maintaining it. Of course you know? not. But let's say you had fuck you money and you had the space to accommodate it. What six synth would you grab? I'd love one of those, like, what was it? CP80? I mean, do you know what that one is? It's this Yamaha, Yamaha one? Yeah, electric grand. Ooh, I love this little space age piano. That is cute. Yep, those are cool. You know, some of the clavs that, like, for example, Stevie Wonder played, those are cool. As somebody who cannot play piano or anything, the Fairlight CMI is the coolest synth to me. Yeah, the thing rules. Can we like find somebody in LA who has one and go harass them? There must be a bunch of them here. Because not only is it a dope synth, everyone listening, I need you to go look this up right now. It's exactly what you want it to look like. It's exactly what you want it to look like. And if you think of what would keyboard head Layton be really into, it's an image of this. It has a mechanical keyboard on it. And I have the Arturia VST of this. And it has the little... Mm -hmm keyboard on the UI, and I mean the typey keyboard, so you could like change your, your patches and shit. That is just as chonky as you like them. Oh, yeah. But when you click on it, it makes little typing sounds. <laughs> it's really cute. <laughs> but you can't record the typing sounds, which is fucked up to me, that you're going to present that as an option on a Fairlight CMI and then not yeah. give me the ability to MIDI note those keyboard clicks. I like in all of these pictures I'm looking at right now, it has the green waveform, yes. like 3D waveform on black background monitor. Oh, I, I grew up with a lot of green text on black screens. Oh, Brian, I'm wearing that shirt that I sent you a picture of yesterday. Oh, yes. It's just the internet is awesome. I'm straight up ripping this off for a late night merch shirt, just so you guys know. Great. Oh, green text on black. Beat only by the like, I don't even know what, like ochre? Yeah. Text. That's basically what that color is, right? Like sort of yellowy tan. Yeah. Oh, that is okay. That's pretty close, actually. I had a, a monitor for an Apple IIe with the ochre text. Okay, let's do some segments. So, Leighton, our first segment is called What's Pop? Mm -hmm. And its theme song goes here. We always add it in post. So, Jarek, put it in there. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? Brian, what's popping? What's popping for me this week is it is one of my favorite albums, which I come back to every few years. Uh, I'm a big Devo fan. Speaking of synths, mm. have been for a long time. I don't think we've discussed much Devo on the show. You know, Devo famously a bunch of art student weirdos who created a fake band that became a real band and became massively popular. I didn't know that lore. Oh, yeah. So they were art students at, I believe, Kent State, and they made a movie called, I think it's called The Truth About De-Evolution, which had a band in it called Devo because of De-Evolution. Oh. And then they basically just started doing stuff as Devo, and then they became a quote-unquote real band. Although, what is a real band anyway, which mm. is part of the point. And their early stuff especially is, I mean, if you like weird fucking synths, Oh boy. <laughs> Early Devo is some of my favorite music, which means it is very much in the Rachel saying, can we please listen to something else <laughs> zone? 
And it's great. They have a kind of, I don't even know what you call it, like oddities pair of albums called Hardcore Devo, which has some real great sense on it. But the album I'm talking about today is their second album called Duty Now for the Future, which is just great. I mean, the synth work is awesome. There's some fun guitars. It has some of my all-time favorite Devo songs, including Pink Pussycat, which nobody really talks about, but I really love their cover of Secret Agent Man, a song that is actually probably the most popular song of the ones I've mentioned, uh, which is kind of two songs called Smart Patrol slash Mr. DNA, or maybe it's the other way around. I don't think so. It's just great. It's very high energy. It's got a very punk vibe. It's like a classic new wave album. It's clearly a bunch of young people screaming while playing amazing synthesizers. You know, it's Mark Mothersbaugh and the other Devo guys. Uh, Jerry Casal and everybody else. And the songwriting's great. It's like interesting stuff musically too. So I love the album. There's a really funny Rolling Stone review of it, which I just read where the guy fucking hates it, hates (laughs) it. But it is certainly recognized as one of the classic new wave albums now. And I can't recommend it highly enough. It's great. And it's like one of those albums that's exactly the right blend of weird and poppy. It's just fantastic. So yeah, Duty Now for the Future by Devo. Hold on. I was searching Devo just so I could get some like, you know, visual reference. Do you know about John Hinckley Jr.'s deal with Devo? Oh God, no. What? Um, He's claiming that he co-wrote a song with Devo that he deserves royalties for. This is just this week? Yeah. Oh God. What did he say he wrote? Back in 1982, I co-wrote a song with Devo called I Desire. It's on their album, Oh No, It's Devo. Yes, I know this song. The album is still selling worldwide, especially in Japan and Europe. I haven't seen royalties in 35 years. What's the deal? I don't know, man. You kind of tried to assassinate the president? Uh, (laughs) They took verses from the poem. Oh, I Desire. I see. It it includes some of the poetry he wrote for Jodie Foster. Oh, my God. You know about that whole thing, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I was too young for this when it happened, you know, like, I don't know how much of that transcends generations. Getting back to Devo, they're like still like playing shows and stuff. Good for them. Not many, but they tour. Have you seen them? I have not. I mean, they are legitimately one of my all-time favorite bands, so I would love to see them. Apparently, they were here for some festival or something over the summer, and I just missed them. But yeah, I'd love to see Devo someday. Well, I like that. Good popping. Thank you. What's yours? What's popping? What's popping for me is, you know, several months ago, we talked about me watching Mommy Dearest, and I decided to read the book by Christina Crawford that it is based on. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's Mommy Dearest, the book, and then Christina Crawford, 10 years later, wrote a follow-up called Survivor. In the book, Mommy Dearest, like, it's very, very classic, like, very harrowing, like, child abuse tale that's also about dealing with having a famous parent and, like, this disparity between the public image and the private image. And, like, it's a huge bummer, huge content warning for, like, child abuse and, like, literally everything. But it is so incredibly written and, like, insightful. Really? Yes, yeah. And, like, what a strong woman. Like, Christina Crawford is amazing for having gone through all that stuff and, like, the story... You know me. I hate inspiring shit. It's so inspiring. (laughs) And then the follow-up, it talks about how the Mommy Dearest movie got made and how it got as fucked up as it did. I personally think that movie is great, unironically. 
It's a cult classic, cult camp classic. I guess. But it's a real disgrace to Christina's account of things, even though a lot of the things that happen in the movie are based on things that she talks about. But what's crazy about it is that, like, she had a stroke that paralyzed her and, like, she almost died as the movie was releasing. Christina did? Yeah. Oh, God. And so, you know, she was in the hospital fighting for her life. And then she got out and found out, like, what a huge backlash there was. And she didn't expect that, like, people would doubt her story about Joan Crawford and that, you know, it would be all of her memories and experiences coming under attack. Wow. But two incredible books. With the way that she describes her mother, it's something that often gets overlooked in a lot of, like, fictional depictions of or discussion about child abuse, where it's like she so perfectly captures that feeling of, I love this person, and it's so difficult. You're kind of forced into the system where you have to accept the obscenely awful things. And then also, I love this person who is nice to me and gives me good things sometimes, which, you know, keeps you holding on. Like, it conveys that really compassionately and insightful. Like, I don't know. I can't praise it enough. Obviously, huge trigger warning for a lot of people. But, you know, if you've had to deal with that kind of thing, it's a very, like, cathartic read. So I recommend it. I knew it was based on a book. I guess I just assumed that there was nothing that special about the book because you never hear about it. Yeah, of course you don't because it got overshadowed by the movie. But the thing is that like Christina Crawford like founded an organization to help victims of child abuse. And when that book came out, nobody had been talking about it. So it was one thing to be like, hey, people abuse their children. And then another to be like, Joan Crawford, America's favorite, abused her children. Right. Because that came out in the 60s? Maybe. 50s? 70s? I yeah. think it was definitely pre 1980 for yeah, sure. Of course. Right? Cause I think mommy dearest was late sixties, early seventies. I think the book was published in 78. Oh really? Oh okay. yeah. wow. I'm just, and mommy dearest was 1981. Fuck. Okay. I was off yeah. by like a decade. And it's interesting too, because like Christina kind of repeatedly states that like, this wasn't meant to, you know, be a whole, like, here's how awful my mom is. Like it's a memoir. It's about her life. And it just so happens that her mother's, you know, everything just overshadowed. It happens in the movie, so I guess people would be familiar with it. But, you know, Christina got on a soap opera and then she got really sick. And then Joan Crawford swooped in while she was sick to take her role on the soap opera and showed up and did everything drunk. So Christina Crawford, (laughs) recovering in the hospital, had to watch her mother, who is way older than the character, take her role and do it while slurring, like, while claiming that she was doing something good for Christina. It's like such classic, like, narcissist behavior. Anyway, yeah, that's what's popping. Wow. Cool. Yeah. All right. Time for Beaches and Lemons, which is three parts gratitude exercise and one part petty grousing. And the theme song goes here. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. I I looked over and I was reading the label on my dog's cat treats. To maintain your cat's proper weight, reduce the amount of cat food offered proportionately to the amount of snacks you feed your cat. I don't know why that caught my eye. It just did. And you're asking, Leighton, you don't have a cat. Why do you have cat treats? Well, they're for my dog. So, Well, they're made out of cat. Yeah, you know, she has particular tastes. Yeah. She has a very specific set of skills, <laughs> which include cowering, barking, yeah, becoming senseless with fear. <laughs> she takes after her mother. <laughs> 
I have a short lemon, my lemon. And I guess this lemon is one that I wrote down and saved from a few weeks ago, but pretend that it just happened. Mm -hmm. I went to the store and I purchased some fancy olives, like a little plastic container of fancy Mm -hmm. Castelvetrano olives, which I love. I put it in my paper grocery bag because I forgot to bring a regular grocery bag. And then I was getting out of my car and I took the bag out of my car and the handles broke off of the bag and the bag hit the ground. Oh, I hate that. The handles are a trap. Paper grocery bag handles are a trap. Yeah, and I usually don't carry them like that. I was just picking it up to take it out of my car so I could hold it from the bottom like a responsible adult. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway, it falls, and I just see it. (sighs) It's too graphic. No, use it. Say it. All right, fine. The bag starts miscarrying olive juice, much like the subway scene in Possession 1981. (laughs) Is that too much? (laughs) Not for me. I can't think of a better, just the way that it started leaking fluid. And so I go, no, my olives. And I'm able to salvage the olives themselves, but I lost all of the brine, which is kind of like the best part. I'm right here. (laughs) So I'm never buying expensive olives again. I was going to drink that. I was going to sip that brine. I can't react to that. I'm sorry. (laughs) All right, fine, Brian, what's your lemon? I don't think anyone's ever said, sip that Brian before. No, and they never will. Yeah, well, not if I have anything to say about it. (laughs) If Audrey ever murders me and turns me into a blended paste, then maybe. That would be a sloppy Brian. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Turning it around, calling it back, perfect. Meticulous broadcasting is what we do here. Oh, yeah. Every aspect of this episode, meticulously planned. We should probably introduce the show. No, I don't think we should. (laughs) I don't think we should. I think you should say your lemon. All right. My lemon is, so while I was up in uh, Toronto working on this jazz album, I'm back at my Airbnb one night using my laptop, which is a MacBook Pro with the the little control bar on the thing. Mm -hmm. And that bad boy freezes and is now inoperable. So. I looked up what to do with it. I went into the terminal. I reset all the blah, blah, blahs. And it changes its display, but I can't use it. Touching it doesn't work. And I've touched the shit out of it at this point. Hmm. And nothing is happening. So I can still use the laptop just fine. It's getting on the old side for a laptop. It's like three plus years old. Hmm. So maybe it's time to get a new one, which is never a fun thing with a Mac because it's like, wait, how much? But, <laughs> Also, they don't make fucking the, the 15 inch screens anymore. Now they do the 14 and 16, which really uh, maybe I missed it. But back in my day, I had the MacBooks were 13 inches and it was a plastic unibody and they were cuter that way. Damn it. Yeah, you can get a 13, a 14 or a 16. Not to be a keyboard person, but those keyboards are absolutely disgusting. On the MacBook? Yes. On the new ones. Oh, I haven't seen them. They're the ones where it like they're barely there and they make that weird little like click. Oh yeah, no thank you. No. Butterfly switches or something or other. Anyway, got to get a new laptop. I don't have to because it's in this stupid phase where it still technically works fine, but works just not enough to be annoying. Why would you not make an escape key part of the keyboard? It's so stupid. It's not a part of the keyboard? No, it's in the control bar. What? The regular keyboard has no escape key on a MacBook. Oh, but at least you can see the emojis if you want to add emojis. Thank God. Yeah, it has all this fucking pictures that show up on the control bar, but not the fucking escape key, which you use more than any other key up there. Yeah. Like, And that's where the sound controls are. 
So I'm in my Airbnb and Audrey calls and it's like late at night because it's a three hour time difference. And my hosts who are upstairs with their kid suddenly hear, ah, 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 and I was like, oh God, you know, let me turn off. Oh, I can't turn down the sound. So, oh. God, life is so hard. Yeah, we really have it rough. I have a new lemon. I've been battling ants in my apartment for several weeks. Uh-huh. And I truly thought yesterday, I was like, oh yeah, they're gone. It's getting too cold for them. Nope. Oh no. Big old swarm. One day I will kill all of you and you'll be gone from my home. Like, sorry guys, go somewhere else. Not here, not for you. Like they really inflame some very irrational part of my brain that gets disproportionately angry at these poor little bugs who are just trying to survive and don't understand concepts like apartment and mental health. And no nut November. Oh, they're nutting. Oh yeah, that's the thing about bugs. They're constantly coming. Yeah, so I think we should enforce no nut November, but only for bugs. Anyway, peach time. My first one is that when I woke up this morning, there was like a thick wall of fog out the window where I like couldn't really see it beyond my balcony. And I was like, oh, cool. Yes. It's like Silent Hill. So that's my first peach. <laughs> yeah, I was driving early this morning and there was fog everywhere. It was awesome. Yeah, it kind of rules. My second peach is that, I don't know, since my like anxiety breakthrough with the Witching Hour show and like having one less thing to stress out about. I've just been in a pretty like level good mood for the past week, which that's great. It's highly unusual. And I know that will not last forever, but it's nice to know that I am capable of doing it. So I'll get back on that bike eventually. Once I eventually fall off it, it's fine. Yeah. So that's great. My third peach is that I had this dream last week that I can't stop thinking about where I went to, there's this mall that was underground. I have a lot of dreams about malls, mm -hmm. dream analyzers in the crowd. Let me know what that means. But there was like a subway stairway, like downstairs into a basement, right? And a big neon green sign pointing down that said St. Arlington's. And so I go into this basement called St. Arlington's and there's a huge sign it says, St. Arlington's, the only movie theater where you can text and smoke. <laughs> yeah. all in your dream and you remember this. Yeah. Text and smoke. Yes. And so there's a sign. I sketched up the sign because it was so specific. It was like MST3K style, like audience cutouts in front of the screen where all the text was. But then it was just like phone, cigarettes, all the way down. We'll put a picture of it on the Instagram, but it was just so specific graphic design-wise. Anyway, so I go to St. Arlington's and I'm like, oh boy, you get to text and smoke in here. And then it's sort of like an Alamo Draft House kind of situation. And I was getting really mad because I couldn't pay attention to the movie because everyone was texting and smoking. <laughs> <laughs> so St. Arlington's. I just love how specific the name was. That's, yeah, St. Arlington's, wow. I don't even know where that came from. Anyway, the only movie theater where you get text and smoke. That's really great. You know people would go there. They were showing three movies, actually. The first one was called Schiller. The second one was called Dreamland. Schiller? Schiller, yeah. And then the third one was called The Many Saints of Newark. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny, because Schiller is a song by Ratatat, and Dreamland is a song-slash-album by Glass Animals. Mm -hmm. So I think my brain was just doing a little shuffle through my Spotify, and then Sopranos. Ooh. So those are my peaches. 
What about you? Wow. All right. Peach number one. Uh, I went to a new donut shop this morning, Ooh. Sidecar in Santa Monica, and it was pretty solid. You know, always excited to try a new donut and coffee place. This was definitely on the like hip upscale side of that spectrum, but I had a huckleberry donut, which I rather enjoyed. Like a filled huckleberry? No, I, I don't like filled donuts typically. Neither do I. I mean, talk about goopy. Like, I don't want that stuff gooping out all over the place. If the substance of a donut is more goop than done, no. Yes, 100%. Let me go off here for just a moment. Why is the generic flavor of a jelly donut raspberry jelly? What the fuck is going on with that? I hate raspberry jelly. I like raspberries, but I don't like raspberry flavoring. And most of the time when you get a jelly donut, a generic like powdered jelly donut, it's fucking raspberry jelly, and it's just abominable. Raspberry jelly or any sort of like raspberry sauce needs to be a drizzle or an accent on something else. It can't be the main bit. Yes. It's just oppressive when there's too much. I feel exactly the same thing about cherry flavoring. Like too much of that is like ugh, just awful. But even other filled donuts, no interest. I don't want to bite into a donut and have the first like texture be like wet. But you're fine when it's a sandwich that's been in the fridge overnight? Yes, very much so. Another callback. Wow. Unprecedented. Two callbacks. I, like, I conceptually so want to be down with a Boston cream donut, but it should be like Boston cream with donut because there's just like no donut in that. Yeah. Unfortunately, Boston cream donuts are fucking awful. I want them to be good. I would love to like them, but they're just bad. I like cake donuts, which this was, with a like huckleberry frosting. Yeah. Which was great. So new donut shop, that was number one. Number two, when I was flying back from Toronto, when I was buying my plane tickets, I was looking at the fares, and for a very slightly longer plane ride with a connection, there was a fare that was like a stupid cheap first class fare. What? And I was like, this has to be wrong. The normal ticket was 300 and the first class was 400 something like that. And I'm not even exaggerating, like that's what it was. This was like one particular itinerary. All the other first class itineraries are like, you know, the usual bullshit, like a thousand bucks or whatever. And I was like, should I fucking do it? I'm going to fucking do it. You know, so I bought this first class fare. I'm in Toronto and it's a connecting flight, which I try not to do. But for a cheap first class fare, I was like, why the fuck not? You know, yeah, I'm going to give daddy a little pampering. And I'm sitting there and then I get the notification that my... First flight has been delayed by three hours. Huh. And I'm like, oh, 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 no. At this point, I'm like, I want to get home. And if I miss my connecting flight, who knows what the deal is going to be. And then 20 minutes later, I get another text from the airline saying I've been rebooked on a direct flight from Toronto to L.A. in business class with the fucking lay down seats. Oh. Had I purchase that. That's probably legitimately one of those like $1,500 tickets. Mm. But I just got in for quote unquote free because I had purchased the other first class flight wow. and I got to fly on Air Canada instead of United. And it was a lovely flight. I had a couple gin and tonics nice, and food was good and everything was properly bilingual. And it was awesome. So what's the big difference between business class and first class, having been in neither of those in my life? To be honest, I don't know. Typically now, I 
think business class that's for like long flights and has seats that lay flat. I mean, there's some shit with like airlines. I've seen like Emirates planes where you can, you know, for whatever, some ungodly amount of money, $20,000, get essentially a studio apartment on the plane. Like it has a queen size bed and shit. Yeah, of course. Business class, I think now typically has those like, you have your own little pod, essentially. It was dope. I've only ever once before been in a business class flight, which was I was flying back from India to Jersey. You know, it was for physics. I had my normal flight and I was sitting next to this very, very old lady. And a woman comes up to me and she says, hi, you know, this is my mother here. I'd really like to sit with her. And I was like, oh God. But I will always say yes to that because I'm, you know, I don't want to separate people. And she goes, I'm up in in business class. Would you mind switching with me? (laughs) And I was like, what? What? And that's a 15 hour flight. Yeah. My God. That's a big difference. And I was like, hell yeah. (laughs) And I was like, are you sure? Like you really want to do this? Because that's a big difference. And yeah. Without doing anything, I got switched to business class because she wanted to sit next to her mom. Yeah, I have never been in any class that isn't that one seat in front of the bathroom that you cannot recline. (laughs) I feel like I just have the best luck at always getting that exact seat. Yep, that's a bad one for sure. I will never be, you know, in a financial position to always fly first class or whatever, like some people do. But for this one flight, It was a nice little perk that ended up being actually a a much nicer little perk. Yeah. So that was a fun peach. And my final peach is uh, I talked about trick-or-treating last week. What I didn't talk about was the Halloween party. We went to at Lasercorn's house (gasps) the previous night. You know, it was just a couple families. It was us. Trisha Hirschberger's family was there too. And then a couple other people and all the kids played together. And it was really fun. Lasercorn is all family rules. His little, little boy, Amir, is just the cutest fucking thing ever. And it was a lot of fun. I love those guys. It was nice to spend a Halloween weekend with them. That's wonderful. I'm really happy to hear that. We've been seeing them a bunch recently. We went over to their place for pumpkin carving Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago. And then Rachel did a thing in NoHo with them while I was out of town. So they're getting to be close friends. And I love them. They're the best. Wonderful. Well, hey. Yep. That's our episode. Right? I mean, I think we did it. We did. Uh, hey, everyone. Welcome to Late Night, a podcast for the Terminally Online. Yeah, I'm Lincoln Gray. That one was Brian. Whoa. You haven't used our Terminally Online description in a long time. That is a... I know. Well, it's been a while. Yeah. So that's both the intro and the outro. And the outro. And in honor of Pro-Nut November, I'm going to say the, the catchphrase. Yeah. Stay safe and come hard. Like really hard, like extra hard. Unrelentingly. For Pronut, November. But yeah, that never give up, never surrender. 24 7, all throughout November, continuous. That's the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Late Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at Leighton at gmail.com. <laughs>